1: Business is Boring is made by the spin-off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency.
0: Here's your host, Simon Pound. Although museums have come a long way, in some ways, a lot of what goes on can still be quite passive. There'll be an exhibit, maybe a bit of text to explain it, an audio tour if you pay for it. And the bits of text, to contextualise all of these items with so many stories, are so often dry and lifeless. Imagine if these things could tell you, really tell you, all their stories. And what if you could ask them questions? Well, that is what today's guest is working to make real. Whaka Interactive create the technology and visual storytelling for talking pictures that you might find in museums and other places or businesses with stories to tell. They look like a normal photo, and then, Harry Potter-like, they notice you watching and start telling you the story. There are first steps at being able to prompt them and ask questions, and the technology is being used by artists and museums and businesses to bring things to life. The company called this technology Culture Lens, and it is the stories of Māori and Pacifica culture that the founders are particularly excited to capture and share. CEO and co-founder Jesse Armstrong joins us now to talk the journey through founding a Te Papa Innovation Accelerator, all of the team moving to Wellington, and their growth to today. Kia ora, good morning, thank Kia you for ara. being
1: here. Yeah, thanks for having
0: me, yeah. Hey, so first up, tell me about your journey towards founding the company, are did you draw from in your background in in marketing and customer support and business studies?
1: Yeah, so um, I was always fascinated by innovation. Uh, growing up, I was always a curious guy who would just spend time picking things apart and trying to figure out how they work. I never imagined that I would actually become an entrepreneur and start my own business at some point. And so um, I actually went and studied overseas, and I, I was uh, enjoying my time there. But then uh, as I kind of went through my studies, I noticed a problem, for me at least, which was... Um, I was sick of taking exams, to be honest. I felt like I wasn't really learning anything. I was just kind of there uh, memorizing stuff to get a good grade on a piece of paper. And I I kind of realized that that wasn't the life for me. I didn't want to graduate and work for a big corporate like some of my friends were. Um, And I remember taking an entrepreneurial marketing class. This was probably hands down one of the best uh, university papers I've ever done. Um, and the professor the first day I walked in and he said I just want everybody in this class to know we don't do any formal exams here and we all looked at each other like is he pulling her leg or what's going on uh, we found out it was all true and he said it's all going to be practical real world based learning um, you're going to be working in groups and you're actually going to be working with real businesses and you're going to learn how to develop marketing strategies for them with an entrepreneurial mindset um, which means you're, we're going to give you a theoretical budget which is going to be a very limited budget and you have to learn how to work within that budget um, to make as much impact as you can. And so um, that class was only about seven, eight weeks. And I remember everything I've learned from that class. It was mind-blowing and incredible. But it was, um, aside from the marketing aspect of it, it was actually the entrepreneurial side of it that really um, woke me up to realize I actually want to be an entrepreneur. And I, uh, I found it uh, exhilarating. Every, every time I thought about the challenge of how do I make big impact on a little budget, um, I started thinking, oh, okay, well, maybe one day I could run my own business and start it from scratch and, you know, try and work within these same types of challenges. Um, little did I know that it was this this kind of uh, feeling of inspiration was going to lead to dropping out of college, moving back to New Zealand um, and and starting a company that um, was in an, an industry that I had no relevant experience in. So I, I have nothing prior to starting Waka, I had nothing to do with the tech industry. You know, we work with animation and all kinds of stuff, and I, I wasn't experiencing any of that. And so um, we got back to, uh, I got back to New Zealand, I contacted some friends of mine, and I said, look, um, I, I think we should start a business together. I've got an idea. It was an app idea, because, you know, we live in the day and age when anyone can come up with an app idea. And uh, long story short, they bought into the idea and said, let's do this. We ended up meeting with some um, business mentors from the Pacific Business Trust, and uh, the very first session we had with them, we kind of pitched this, this idea that we had, and they said, yeah, the idea is okay, but to be honest, um, none of you have any relevant experience in this space, and um, uh, we suggest that you should look at something like an accelerator program. And we said, oh, we don't know anything about accelerator programs. And they said, well, an accelerator program is great because it literally accelerates your learning about a specific industry and gives you um, a hands-on immersive experience to develop innovative ideas for that particular industry. And it just so happened at the time Te Papo had um, already launched uh, the year before their uh, three-year accelerator called Mahuki. Um, it was focused on developing solutions for the culture and heritage sector, and uh, Pacific Business Trust had um, been working with them to find more uh, teams like us um, who, who they thought would do really well in that accelerator. So they said, "Yeah, look, um, we th- we think you guys should go to Mahuki uh, and 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 try your luck there." We went through the application process and realized that we're going to need to pitch some kind of idea as part of this application. We don't know anything about museums, so let's just go to a museum and sit down, watch people, see what we can learn. Maybe like talk to some of the curators there and kind of get some uh, insights as to how things work in the museum space. Um, yeah, and so that's kind of where it all started. We went to Auckland Museum and um, had a few days there to kind of figure out what this idea was going to be. And I still remember this experience very clearly because I remember we spent most of our time in the Māori exhibition that they have. And, um, you know, a lot of foreign tourists, they come over and they're fascinated by Māori culture. So especially the ones that go to the museum, they walk into the space and one of the first things you notice is uh, the whare fukairo that's there. It's this massive, beautiful carved meeting house um, and it just draws attention straight away. And so we noticed flocks of people just heading towards this this whare, we thought, okay, let's. that's interesting. Let's sit down and um, just kind of observe some of the behaviors that we see there and just see what we can learn. We probably, probably three or four hours of sitting there just people watching. Um, kind of felt a little creepy at first because <laughs> I was like, I hope nobody looks at us and realizes we're looking at them or observing them, you know, but um, we learned a lot of valuable things from that from the experience. Uh, what highlighted the problem for us was um, an interesting insight that came from noticing how much time on average each person spent in the space. We watched, um, on average, about three to 400 people. And <clears throat> during their time in that whare, uh, most of them were only spending around 30 seconds to a minute max. They'd walk in, they'd look around, take some photos. You'd hear them make comments like, wow, the craftsmanship is beautiful. And then they'd turn around and leave. And for us who understand what what was actually there, I was sitting there going, they have no idea what they're looking at. So we actually went up and interviewed a few of them and said, hey, just wanted to ask you about your experience. We're looking at developing some solutions for the museum space. Um, would you mind taking a quick kind of, you know, two-minute survey? And a lot of them were quite keen to help out. And so we asked them things like, hey, um, what what were some of the um, experiences that you had inside this building? And they said, well, look, we're, we're, we think that what we're looking at is great, but we actually don't know what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And we don't understand why the carvings look the way they do and why this carving is different from that one. And, uh, one guy said, look, I don't understand why um, uh, they're placed in certain areas of the building and I have a feeling that there's probably some kind of significance to that. So what we realized is that there was a real hunger to to understand uh, beyond the superficial uh, level what was actually there, you know, and, and, and to see that from the, the culture's perspective. Um, we then had an opportunity to interview um, some of the curators that were there and ask them um, if they felt like this was a problem that they had observed as well. And they all agreed. They said, yeah, we, um, it's, it's a real struggle to try and help people understand from a Maori perspective what they're actually looking at. And so we stood back and said, look, um, it looks like the, the, the key problem here is that there's a, a missing uh, understanding of what's actually there, and, and we need to find a way to help people understand from the perspective of the culture themselves what they're actually looking at. So we st- stood back, sat down, and put our thinking caps on got into a huge brainstorming session. This is all right there in the, in the museum. Um, <clears throat> and we, were, we identified that we needed to develop some kind of solution that would focus on storytellers themselves, that the people behind the stories, and, and how do we bring those people to life? And uh, literally, I, I remember this. As soon as we kind of asked that question, how do we bring storytellers to life, I looked up and I noticed to the very left of the foyer there were these beautiful um, portraits, kind of Goldie Lindauer-style portraits, and I was looking at them, and then the light bulb moment hit, and I thought, that's that's the storytellers right there. And I, uh, like I said, I didn't come from a background in tech, so I didn't mm-hmm. quite know at the moment if it was possible to do something like that, but I kind of heavily assumed in today's day and age there's probably a way to bring portrait characters to life and have them tell their stories. And so that's the idea that we pitched, and uh, we were very fortunate enough to validate the idea and, and have a need for it in the market, and, and today it's what we're still doing now, so... Ah, oh, that, that's so
0: cool, <laughs> and and so let, let's take a step back to kind of like the the idea and getting your team together and going mm. and seeing, uh, the team at um, the Pacific Business Support uh, sure. Agency that you went to. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I mean that that's quite cool. So you, you came back. You would had this entrepreneurial streak, obviously, yep. because <laughs> if you've got the get up and go to go and study overseas, right. then you're obvi- you you've got the risk taking and yeah. the, the <laughs> jumping out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And, and, and all of that there, and then come back, you know, fired up with the idea. Mm. What was the idea you first, um, you <laughs> first, you first said to your friends? And yeah, and, yeah.
1: and and how did you choose them? Yeah. So, um, the idea was around uh, productivity. Uh, you know, in the app space, there's apps for all kinds of things these days. But I was particularly interested in developing an app that would help people be more proactive and productive without having to be dependent on their phones too much. So, as an example. The idea came to me when I was trying to handle a busy school schedule. I was working full-time over in the US as well, and it was quite hard to stay on top of everything. And it was because I was spending so much time just plugging everything into my phone and having to set reminders and all kinds of stuff. So the original idea was um, essentially an app that would uh, proactively think ahead about your schedule and kind of help you to stay on top of it. So the concept was that if you woke up in the morning, the alarm goes off, and you say to your phone, like, alarm off. You, You know, this is all while you're lying in there in bed. Um, then the voice uh, on your phone proactively says, oh, good morning, Jesse, uh, here's your schedule for today that you've set. Is there anything else you need to set in your schedule? And so you're just sitting there literally saying, yeah, I need to set a meeting with this person at this time, blah, blah, blah. And then throughout the day, the app would proactively look ahead to your schedule, consider location-based data like, oh, you're here and your next appointment is here, but the traffic is saying that if you leave now, you're, you're going to be about half an hour late prompts you would you like me to send a message to this person to let them know you're going to be late things like that just to kind of remove the need to do all that little admin stuff Mm -hmm. so that was the original idea um, but it was just an idea and when we pitched it to our mentors they said yeah it could work but ideas like this especially in a a crowded space like the app market hard to get off the ground and with uh you know little to no relevant experience extremely hard to get off the ground so they suggested that we head to the accelerator program instead
0: that's that's so
1: cool. Uh, and so the Pacific Business Trust had been mm. building this
0: accelerator innovation kind of incubation uh, program with with Te Papa. And were all the ideas having to be in the cultural space?
1: Yeah. So, because um, <clears throat> Te Papa had had decided, uh, I think this was twenty fifteen or twenty sixteen, that they were going to set up their own accelerator program. Um, it was not a very common thing in that in that space uh, now there are a lot of museums around the world who are starting to talk about the potential of doing something like that. Uh, I know that there are a couple over in the u s that have kind of, they have kind of like an incubator uh, space sorted out but te Papa said look we 're going to take a bit of a risk here and um, get some funding together, set up an accelerator program and see where this where this takes us and so uh, we were the second cohort that came through um, There was a previous cohort before us. And we got to kind of see what had happened to those teams and, and some of the ideas they came up with. Um, the focus of the accelerator program was to innovate the culture and heritage sector, but when when they set this up, they said that doesn 't just mean that we want you to build new digital interactives for the floor um, for, for an exhibition space. Sometimes there are solutions that can help with things like um, the logistics of traveling exhibitions and how that whole space works when a museum shares their exhibition with another museum worldwide. Mm. Uh, and, and it was fascinating to learn about the stuff behind the scenes that happens in the museum and, and, and art gallery space.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're yeah. amazing things. They're like icebergs, aren't they? You only ever see yeah. a tiny <laughs> amount on the surface oh, yeah. of the collections that go underground, yeah, yeah, yeah. literally and figuratively. Yeah. There's so much of it kind of <laughs> yep. uh, under the surface.
1: Yeah, Te Papa, for example, they were saying that what you see on the floor is only about roughly 2% of their entire collection. And we were really privileged as part of that accelerator program to go to their um, storage facility on Tory Street. Mm. <laughs> it's like several stories underground, you know, and they've got really cool stuff down there, skeletons and all kinds of things there. So, um, yeah, fascinating to learn about
0: that space. And so when you when you landed that idea with your team uh, in the Auckland Museum, uh, such a cool kind of idea to actually get um, the the Tīpuna te to tell the stories to the future generations yeah. of, <laughs> of the things that are happening. Mm. Um, were you all Auckland-based? I mean, was it a... Was it a trivial uh, exercise to go, oh, yeah, we'll go to
1: um, to Wellington, (laughs) to to (laughs) up and and do this program? Yeah, so funny enough, when I um, first came up with the idea, I was still in the U.S., uh, the three others who were all good friends of mine that I contacted, one was in Melbourne, one was in Brisbane, the other was back here in Auckland. Um, I pitched the idea to them, and they we all moved back to New Zealand first, to Auckland. This was before we knew about the accelerator program in Wellington. Um, and then, you know, while we were in Auckland, we met the Pacific Business Trust. They said, oh, you should really do this accelerator program, but it means you're going to need to go to Wellington. And we all looked at each other like, are we we're we going to move again. We're we going to do this again. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we weighed up the pros and cons. Um, these these friends of mine, and I have to be real careful when I talk about, like, starting a business with family or friends because I know that um, some people haven't had the best experience in doing that. Um, I had an incredible experience when we started the company. Uh, the, the friends that I reached out to were friends that I, I trusted. Uh, they were friends that I had um, learned how to agree to disagree with in the past. So I knew that we would have a good dynamic and it wasn't always going to be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is going to go great because we're all friends, you know. We could still be very real with each other. Um, and and so when I reached out to these friends, they none of them had had any relevant experience in business or the entrepreneurial world as such. And so this was kind of a very a first take at, at having a go at being an entrepreneur for all of us. Um, and because we were all in that same boat together, mm-hmm. we decided, you know what. Screw it. Let's just move to Wellington. <laughs> and, and they'd already
0: moved to Auckland, yeah. a number of them,
1: uh, on, on the idea of how cool it would be to get something
0: going. Mm. And, and were there families involved as well? Yeah, yeah, there were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. That, so that's amazing. So a bunch of <laughs> you are down there with families. You've moved to Wellington yeah. and you're in the accelerator. No tech backgrounds, but yep. lots of relevant experience in terms of um you know, being interested, mm. users of apps, yeah. uh, you, you know, aware of the system, but not mm. not necessarily coders, is that right?
1: Yeah, so we, um, interestingly enough, we, we took it from the perspective of if we were the typical type of user, what would be best for us? And um, we've come to learn later down the track that that's actually one of the best ways to approach a new idea, is not necessarily think of it straight away as how am I going to build this and get it off the ground, but more so the first thing anyone who wants to get into entrepreneurship should ask themselves is, um, if I was a user of this product or service, would I genuinely have a need for it? And would I be willing to pay money for it? Um, And so as we kind of thought about it from that perspective, uh, from the user's perspective, it was a lot easier for us to start to buy into the idea because we could start to see it from the eyes of a user. Um, But of course, that's not enough, right? You, You still have to validate in the market that there's a need for it, that customers will pay for it. So the Accelerator Programme filled that gap. Um, because we didn't have connections with museums, Te Papa established uh, a, a, a level of credibility for us that we were able to leverage to go to museums all over the world and say, hey, we're doing this Accelerator with Te Papa. They're an internationally acclaimed museum, um, known for innovation worldwide. And, and as a result, that opened a lot of doors and a lot of conversations with large museums all over the world, and they were very willing to just kind of openly help us validate our product.
0: Tell me about
1: that journey of actually taking this idea, because I
0: imagine that there's, you know, the idea of making a a, a picture, then be able to recognise people and talk to them. Mm. It sounds kind of like movie special effects. Yeah. Uh, is it like producing and making your own small movie and having yeah. to assemble, like, you know, the, the same kind of talents and skills as the team that would make a Weta Workshops production or yep. a Harry Potter or something.
1: Yeah, totally. And and the, the really good thing about being based in Wellington with the likes of Weta there is that you start to meet a lot of people who are in that industry. Um, so I, I would safely say one of the most important things that we needed um, from in the early days of our journey and even still now was guidance and mentorship from experienced people in the spaces where we didn't have the experience. And so, yeah, understanding how production works in in the movie industry and in the special effects industry uh, really helped us to shape our own internal content creation processes. And we started being introduced to, you know, world-class software that was being used by the pros all over the world and figuring out what elements of, of all of, you know, these different software programs, what elements work with what we're doing specifically. Um, Without that insight from from some of those key mentors that we met, uh, most likely we would have had an idea that we had validated that we probably would have given up on because we would have been sitting there thinking we have no idea how to build this thing.
0: And, and you're not just making the content either, like a movie. Mm. You're also making, I guess, a g- gamified experience, yeah. like a, a tech product that has to have um, you, you know, real-world uh, ability to recognize like mm. s- people in the space like how does how does yeah. T- yeah talk us through how <coughs> the
1: actual product works yeah yeah sure so um the the interesting thing is that we are actually using a game engine as uh, one of the key components to making this whole thing work so uh, for anyone uh, listening that is familiar with the game dev world we're using unity which is a really popular um, platform um, for creating games um, and so we effectively uh, build software that first recognizes a person so then it acts as the trigger point for the character to know when to come to life and when to just go back to being an idle portrait. Um, So we built a camera into the frame uh, and it took us a little while to figure out how to hide all of that stuff and and to make it still look like a portrait. Um, But effectively, as you approach the frame, uh, camera notices your face. You know, like when you take a selfie and you see that little square appear on your face because the camera in your phone knows that's a face. We're using very similar technology. Um, It's facial detection. And as soon as it sees that face, and of which, by the way, we can program within a certain distance how far that face is recognized. Um, then the portrait comes to life. And um, the tricky thing is the transition from going from a still portrait to moving and come to life portrait. You've you got to be real careful with how sudden the movements are. You don't want to freak people out. <laughs> well, you kind of do, but in a good way. You know, you, you want people to be like, whoa, they just moved. But I want to spend more time with it, as opposed to, oh no, that's creepy. I'm moving <laughs> off, you know. Um, and so that took us a little while to kind of gradually work through that design process and figure out how do we gradually make a portrait come to life in a way that builds curiosity and doesn't, um, you know, scare people away. Um, so yeah, camera recognizes the face, and then it's just a series of animations that um, bring that character to life. We have a pre-recorded script from an actor or actress that we've worked with, um, and so that script plays. And uh, effectively, that's what became our our MVP, our first version. So we said to ourselves, let's just get a portrait talking one way. And then if we can do that really well and that works, then we can kind of um, build new features into the frame after that. Uh, And that's where we're at now. We're actually developing some new features because we launched our MVP product about almost a year ago now. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And was that after two years of solid development? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. Wow, yep. wow, what a what a journey to to get there. And tell me about those first products that you that you made because you worked with some artists, didn't you, in order to kind mm-hmm. of like um do it outside of having to get it into the museum context straight away.
1: Yeah, we did. Yeah, so so we kind of um when we When we had validated the idea and we realized we're going to have to build this thing, uh, as I said, we sat down and said, all right, what's version one? Well, first of all, we said, what's our proof of concept? And then um, once we nailed that, we then went, okay, what's our MVP? So proof of concept, we said, let's just take a canvas portrait, uh, a digitized copy of it, and let's just see if we can bring that to life. So that meant taking a 2D flat portrait uh, and trying to build that into a 3D model, uh, texturing that model, rigging and animating that model to make it look like a 2D portrait was moving, um, which can be tricky. Um, We were really, really fortunate that the UB School of Design, huge shout-out to them, um, were very keen to work with us on this, and so we approached them, and uh, like I said, having that credibility with Te Papa and the Accelerator helped to get us in the door and to kind of like get that that, uh, relationship started. And we said to them, look, we've got this proof of concept. Do you have any students that are still needing some projects for their kind of, you know, end-of-year showreel, and uh, they happened to have two students in their uh, doing their last year at UMI in an uh, animation school who needed a project. Uh, we brought them on board, and literally four days later, after receiving a portrait from uh, Dave Satongi, a copy of one of his portraits, we had a moving portrait. And uh, it was so well done. I was just amazed with how, in this very short period of time, we went from having nothing to having this amazing proof of concept. In a a very short period of time, we had a portrait that moved, but it actually looked like a portrait was moving. It didn't look like a 3D animation uh, imitation of a portrait. Um, And we tested this because uh, at the Mahuki Accelerator, they had several opportunities for us to demo our our proof of concepts to um, various audiences. And it was uh, the National Digital Forum. They had their conference at Te Papa that year. So we're talking about Pretty much every key person that we were going to need to know in the industry in New Zealand was at this event, and uh, Mahuki had set up this kind of little showroom for them to come and check it out. And so that was our first real opportunity to see: uh, do people think that this is a real portrait? And the craziest thing happened. So just to kind of show you how how rugged things were in those days, we had to get a computer monitor, just like you use at a desktop. And uh, we went down to an op shop and got like a $20 frame and just slapped the frame on with duct tape. It was it was that rugged at the back. Um, but we put it out on the floor and we had this kind of video on loop of this animated portrait, just kind of blinking and doing some facial movements, and I can show you that later on. Um, and we put it out there. We didn't say anything. We just wanted to see, do people notice the movement? And if so, what's their reaction? Mm. And we had the same reaction over and over again. We'd have somebody walk up to us. Talk with us, walk off, and then they would come back and be like, "Did that just blink at me?" We're like, "Yes, it did." And and literally, like, we had at least fifty or sixty people that that had had that similar experience um, on that first showing, and it was just like magic for us. It, it was it was gold. Uh, we knew straight away that we were onto something when we were able to, not necessarily trick, but able to convince somebody at first glance that this was a real portrait.
0: And I guess that that kind of. You know, when you surprise and delight people, they're more interested in what you're going to tell them, That's and it. so the stories that you're able to then put behind the frame, mm. uh, the context that you can give to these, um, to, to, to these, these Because yeah, like like t- take me back to that, um, to that first insight as well around wanting to capture, mm. you know, the stories that are that are particular to New Zealand and the Maori and Pacific stories mm. that that people. Even people born and raised in New Zealand mm-hmm. just don't know yeah. so many of these stories.
1: Yeah, so I, I actually had that experience, and um, several of my co-founders were the same. Uh, t- t- sorry, two of the two of the four of us. So of the four of us, one grew up uh, with strong roots to their culture. Uh, Andrea is her name, and she grew up, uh, Samoan, speaks the language fluently, has a really good understanding of protocol and all those types of things, um, and uh Sorry, no. Two of us, two of us did. Carvenga, she's is a Tuvaluan, so she had a very solid understanding of her own culture. Um, whereas the other two, myself and uh, and Jordan, uh, Samoan Marty, Marty being myself, um, we had that other experience where you know we grew up, uh, we kind of knew a little bit of the language. Apparently, I'd gone to Kohanga Reo when I was young, and I could um, I could court it all fairly fluently when I was quite young, but I, I lost most of that when I. Went to primary school, and I had that experience where you know you go up north and spend time with extended Fano, and you have some of your extended Fano try and speak to you in Tedel and you don't really understand what they're saying. and mm. You get aunties who are like, "Oh, disappointed. You should learn how to. You should learn how to speak growing up." And it's like, "Oh, yeah, sorry, auntie." <laughs> um, and, and even understanding basic Tikanga, I, I, I never had a solid understanding of that growing up. And so when we got into this business, it was our way of reconnecting ourselves to our culture. And we spent a lot of time just going back to the basics. For me, it was learning about the basics of of Māori tikanga, um, starting to dip my toes into the world of te reo, and, and and as I've immersed myself more in that space, I'm now kind of like stretching a little bit and saying, all right, how do I get to the next stage of being able to kōrero fluently? And as I've done that, I can start to see, how do I put this? I can start to see why an understanding of culture is so powerful, Um because as you connect to your culture, aside from it, what it does for your identity as a person, you start to understand uh, values, core values that you just can't understand in any other culture. You know, so so through the perspective of Maori, there are certain ways that they view the world that is completely unique to Maori, and it's an extremely beautiful thing when you when you really dive into that space. Uh, I I look out into the world today and I see a lot of these issues that we're having and racism and all these other kinds of issues that we're having and I sit there and I think, you know, I wonder what the world would look like if people just tried to understand different cultures from the culture's perspective and not from an outsider's perspective and it's that keyword perspective that drove the inspiration behind the name of our product which was Culture Lens being that our portraits would act as the lens that you see through but it's seeing through the lens of that culture to see their culture from their perspective.
0: And it's kind of like a little immersive experience, isn't it, in a way that you can have a very big immersive experience yeah. of, of, of learning, but in that thing you're, you're no longer just outside the exhibit. Yeah. You're kind of pulled in.
1: Yeah, that's it. That's it. And, and that's um, actually something that museums do struggle with. Um, from time to time they have winners. You know, Sometimes they'll put things out in the exhibition that really do work very well, and other times they struggle to capture the attention of their viewers long enough to really deliver powerful content. What I've learned after all of my time now and being in the space is that there is a huge need for storytelling in the museum space. Traditionally, museums were viewed as um, places of preservation, you know, where where they're the ones that care for the objects and make sure that the objects are well taken care of and that the stories behind those objects are preserved. Uh, We're shifting into a day and age now where, and I'm grateful this is happening worldwide, museums are starting to realise, some take a long time, but they're starting to realise, That storytelling is the key to relevance. Um, You know, there's a lot of argument that, well, these days you can just use Google, you can find anything in a museum on your phone, which is true. But there's nothing like being there in front of the real thing. Um, it's Kind of similar to why we still have movie theaters even though you can just stream everything from your computer because you can't get that same type of experience from the comfort of your own home. Mm-hmm. And so museums now are realizing that they have to up their game in storytelling because storytelling, if done properly, is where, uh, where you make something that may not be interesting at first seem interesting.
0: It's kind of bananas to think that for so long museums you know, they would have these objects that are, you know, so many stories mm. within them and and, and are con- connected to so many other things around them. Mm. And all you get is a little plaque that said, um,
1: you know, found in this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and found's <laughs> often a funny word, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or you get the opposite yeah. where it's like 20 or 30 paragraphs of information. And you look at that and you're like, I'm not reading all of that. I'm maybe going to read the first few lines, but it, you kind of get two extremes of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, tell me about the applications for this kind
0: of tool, because mm. I imagine that, like, anywhere that has a story that they want to tell yeah. and that likes the idea of kind of surprising, delighting, and and capturing and intriguing, uh, people would be able to use this across like you know, cultural space, mm. obviously, um, but also maybe um, sites of historical interest,
1: businesses. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. So, um, I think to kind of sum up uh, some of the core applications that we're developing. By the way, just to preface this, um, we before we decided on the features that we're now developing, we spent time validating those features. And this is actually a, a piece of advice I learned from a business mentor where he said, um, if you want to get really good at being an entrepreneur, master the art of pre-selling a concept. Because he said that will save you a lot of stress down the long, down, in, in the long term if you learn how to validate a concept before you've spent any time, effort or money Trying to build it, and so um a lot of the features that we're working on now we spent time interviewing users pe- meaning you know visitors to museums we spent time interviewing curators um, and and digital interactive specialists to try and understand what would take uh the experience that we' developed with these frames to a whole new level and funny enough um I come from an instructional design background, so I spent a lot of my time prior to starting this business crafting my ability to facilitate workshops and uh, create content that would uh, take big, complex topics and make it interesting to people who may not have spent time learning about that. And so I I took a lot of the concepts that I would use in uh, how I'd facilitate workshops and figured out how do I create a similar experience um, to capture people's attention long enough and deliver a connected learning experience so when they finish... It's like, oh, now I see the bigger picture, as opposed to I learned a couple of cool things today. Um, And so case in point, we, we realized that one of the most important aspects of a connected learning experience is literally connecting the dots between, in a museum, various objects or various points of a story. And so we said, what if we could take the experience with these frames to a whole new level by literally following the character from point to point and connecting the dots along the way? Um, and, and we've come to find that this, this the term around that is called wayfinding. So we've now, de- well, in the last stages of developing a wayfinding application that literally, and this is all very Harry Potter-like, literally allows the character to move between frames. So imagine speaking to a character at this first point. They point out something interesting about this object, and then to kind of connect the dots, they say, hey, come follow me over here, and I'll show you the next part of the story, and then you literally move with the character through the space. Wow,
0: and they remember each visitor that they were talking with as the characters go, and there's many people having different staged experiences in
1: the space. Yeah, that's it. And and, and you can look at that from a linear standpoint, or you can make it um, more of a a choice-based experience where it's saying, look, if you want to learn about this, then we can go over here, or if you want to learn about this, we can go over here. And it kind of opens up more uh, levels for choice and i've and i 've learned that um, when you give opportunities or invite the user to do more, naturally their level of engagement increases the more their their engagement increases, the higher the likelihood that they're going to retain, and as a result of that retention have a, a, an increased curiosity for whatever they 're learning and so um, I, I take that approach for uh, when we 're um, driving the company moving forward we 're thinking mostly about How do we keep that attention strong? And how do we we drive engagement in the museum experience? So then when they leave, it's not like, wow, I saw a moving portrait today. But it's, wow, I learned something that has now changed my entire perspective of this thing or this culture. And it's kind of like a magic trick
0: when you can take, I don't know, a sinker or something that's a really small... um, element or, or, yeah. and then kind of explain its context and its importance yeah, and how it was made it. and where it's made and why it's special and yeah, how yeah. it was passed down and things like that in a way that mm. like um, can, can, can
1: change people's entire view of like what a, what yeah. a
0: rock can be. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, that's it, that's yeah. it, yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a, a stories bring significance. And so um, you can look at an object that looks like an everyday object, but if you understand the story of that object, it can have an impact on you. For us, that's the most important thing is impact. Where can people go and experience
0: these uh these culture lens products that you've made,
1: yeah, so up here in auckland uh I mean this is an early one that we did, but we launched a frame with the maritime museum um on, on the viaduct um and we're they're very keen to look at some some more uh developments there as well, so we're looking at um potentially doing some more work with them um We are actually at the food show, so we're working with MPI to launch a frame that delivers uh, messaging around food safety, but from a a very different storytelling, unique perspective. Um, I would say for now, those are the only ones here in Auckland to go and check out. Um, We are currently working on getting some more frames out in Wellington, um, working with some clients there, but it's a bit of a slow burn because we're still in R&D mode in lots of ways, so... You know, when you're running a business, one of the key things is to be careful not to run too fast, and so it's it's maintaining that balance that has been um, tricky for us.
0: Yeah, and how have you done that? I mean, it sounds like uh, you know there's been some really great work with the accelerators and the like, mm, mm. but R and D, especially when you're building out novel and interesting technology that brings three or four different, really mm. hard, novel mm, mm. and difficult <laughs> technologies together, yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds uh, like a lot of uh, investment and a lot of um, a lot of hard work,
1: yeah, it is um, one thing about being a business a startup business here in New Zealand is we have uh, we have support systems in place that allow access to funding mentorship support, um, especially for Maori in the tech space so there's not a lot of us Maori and Pacific in the tech space at all, and yet we we come from thousands and thousands of years of innovators who have carried with them the traits. Of, of world class innovation, and, and that's actually the reason why we named our company Vaka Interactive because the Vaka is the symbol of, uh, of that innovation. Um, as a result of, of being in this part of the world, um, the government, for example, actually has a lot of funding available um, for startups, and in particular, our Māori Pacific startups have access to certain funding that can help them to get off the ground. Uh, and, and encourages more Māori and Pacific to get into the tech space, so we accessed some of that funding. And um, I mean, the accelerator program gave us some some seed funding to get started. Most of that was spent on funding our living in Wellington, so we could actually be there <laughs> for the accelerator. Um, but we uh, have received various grants. Um, we've had some of our own money gone, and then we've had a couple of um, private investors that have um, put some early startup capital into the business. We're at a stage now where we're um, almost fully sustainable from, from our own revenue streams. so we're getting to a position where it's saying, all right, are we going to need investment to take us to a whole new level now? And if so, what do we need to do to prepare for that?
0: Because I'd imagine that there are a lot of museums, Spaces, yeah. people in the world where this could have application.
1: Yeah, huge. And and we've um we've got validation now from talking with museums in uh, Egypt, uh, Singapore, uh, parts of the US, Europe. So a- as a result, we know that that there's potential to grow in those spaces. But um I've had mentors who have all warned me about this: be careful not to scale too fast, or to tr- to try and globalise your business too fast. Spend time ensuring that you've got everything set and ready first. Mm-hmm grow as much as you can um, without burning too much resource and then when you're ready to scale and grow then you can look at something like another round of investment because if that's going to help to alleviate some of those cash flow issues and things like that then that might be the smartest move. Where's, where's the plan to take it next? What's, uh, w- you know,
0: what, what will it look like if things have gone really well over the next <laughs> couple of years?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we've been actually working on our long term strategy recently. Um, can't say too much about where we hope to head in the long term because we're still fleshing a lot of that out but We're basically looking at uh, first perfecting what we've got. So we've got effectively a portrait that comes to life and speaks one way. We're working on all these new features like wayfinding. Uh, We're looking at integrating two-way capabilities so you can actually talk with the characters. And so we want to spend a lot of time doing that really well first Um, and then just growing our business by taking on large-scale projects. So um, we're talking with museums now we're really keen to kind of do, like, you know, let's have 20 or 30 of these throughout an entire exhibition space, kind of projects of that size. So, that, that's the goal for us is to prepare to handle those projects, um, especially to handle simultaneous projects happening, some potentially all over the world. Um, and then the long term strategy we're looking at what, what's the end game here for us and, and how are we going to move towards that end game. So, we don't know what that looks like yet, but we've got some good help. And along the way,
0: having taken a lot of kind of figurative and literal leaps, uh, Mm. moving cities a number (laughs) of times, throwing your lot in, jumping into industries. Mm. You know, have people told you that it's bananas to have tried this (laughs) and and what's kept you going?
1: Yeah, yeah. So in the early days, especially when um, we had, uh, like a lot of industry pros ask us, oh, cool, so who's going to be building the the technology? And we're like, oh, none of us know how to code. We had a lot of people sitting there saying, yeah, I don't think this is going to quite work out um but i i had a men- one mentor in particular who said um you know he said you take a look at some of the world's greatest innovations and you take a look at where those founders came from often they didn't come from relevant backgrounds but they noticed a real problem that they were extremely passionate about and they spent time using that passion and that's what i've learned is that regardless of what people say the most important thing is your passion passion is what drives the resilience when you need it Passion is what makes you get up every day and, and say to yourself, I love doing this. Even though you might have people saying to you it's never going to work, it's the passion that pushes you through until you actually make something work. Um, but I have to be careful when I say this because it, it's not just passion. Sometimes people are like, oh, just have enough passion, you'll do it. You have to be smart about how you make decisions moving forward. So for example, you have to validate an idea first before you exercise your passion to invest time and money and effort into building an idea if it's not validated, you invest all that time, money, and effort into building it, and it flops. You can have as much passion as you want, but the reality is that it flops. And so you have to be smart about those decisions as well. For us, we we would um, listen, we're always open to listen to feedback. If people would say, oh, it's not going to work, we wouldn't say to them, oh cool, well thanks for your time and move on. We would ask them, well, why do you think that is? What, what reasons do you think uh, would prevent this from happening? And we would genuinely listen to those reasons and then talk amongst ourselves and say, well, what do we think about what that that guy said or what that person said? And then we kind of weigh it up from there. And also,
0: a lot of hard work. Is, yeah. It's been years now, and you've been working multiple jobs. Yeah. That, you know, everyone's, <laughs> everyone's doing 100 things at yeah, once, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Amazing. Yeah, that's just part of the entrepreneurial journey. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, and as my last thought, like, um, how would you define success? Like, What, what mm. would success be for you in terms of mm. creating that impact that you talked about?
1: Success for me... Oh, wow, that's a great question. Success for me is in the form of long-term impact. If somebody was to experience our technology and as a result gain a curiosity for learning about Maori culture, for example, and as a result of that culture spend time and effort in their life learning about it and appreciating it more, then for me that's, that's success. Uh, I mean, of course, there are other, sh- you know, other other areas of success. You could look at financial success in a company, and we still consider a lot of those areas as well um, to be successful. But for me, the most important one is long-term impact on those that experience our technology. Ah, that's so
0: cool. Thank you so much for coming and Thank sharing you. your story today. That's Jesse Armstrong, who's the CEO of Vaca Interactive. Uh, thank you very much. Cameron. Appreciate it, thanks. Thank you very much to Tina Tiller for producing and thank you very much for having us along and listening. Uh, if you are a fan and follower of The Spin-Off, make sure you check out The Spin-Off Members, uh, a programme where you're able to get behind and support and choose and shape the investigative journalism that The Spin-Off provides.
1: You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callaghan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast
0: Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by Sparklab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on
1: Sparklab, visit sparklab.co.nz.